Nima Let's just take a moment now to pray before we move into our final session where, where really David's going to come and, I think, send us on our way, I hope, rejoicing. Uh, and uh, we're glad to have had you here, um, glad to have had this time together. Um, I was thinking of an analogy just in some conversations that I've had um, with people and how they've been feeling. And it's a little bit like how I sometimes forget that one of the things I need to do is regularly check my tire pressures. And then I go along and I actually find that the tires have gone down quite significantly and I really do need to inflate them. And once I've inflated them, somehow the, the car seems to go better. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it's revealed. I've, I've put the tire pressures back up to what they should be. And I imagine for a lot of you, you feel as if somebody had been slowly letting the air out of your tires. And we hope that these two days have been like pulling into the service bay and getting those uh, tires reinflated uh, to, to take you on your way. And particularly at this time of the year when things can be busy, very shortly we'll move into the Advent season. Uh, but we trust you will know the Lord's blessing on your ministry as you go forward, wherever that may be in whatever context you may be in. So let's bow together in prayer. Loving God, we are gathered here to seek you, to worship you. You are in heaven high and lifted up, higher than our highest thoughts. Holy is your name. Beside you there is no other. You are God and you alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the gift of prayer. We've already been reminded of that in the book of James. We thank you that your ear is ever listening to catch our every word, to hear even the heart's unspoken cry for help. We thank you that the door to your presence is never shut to those who seek to enter on their knees. We thank you that you've given us the confidence to pray because you've told us that your throne is a throne of grace where we have a great and merciful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and who has provided a new and living way for us to draw into your presence. We come now, our Father, to ask afresh and to pray for your strength in the battle that we fight against the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Protect us, we pray, from lowering our standards and forsaking our convictions. Save us from the conformity that fears to be different and from the materialism which believes that a person's life consists in the abundance of their possessions. Protect us, too, we pray, from the passion which can wreck a life and from the impulses which bring regret in their wake. Save us from turning freedom into license or love into lust. 
keep us, we pray, from the power of the fascination of the forbidden thing and from forgetting that in the end our sin is bound to find us out. And in the war that we must wage and in the battle that we must fight day by day, enable us to put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the devil's schemes. Help us to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that give us the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And teach us, we pray, how to use the weapon of prayer that we may keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for ourselves and for all God's people that we may overcome the evil one and walk steadfastly in the way everlasting until we reach our journey's end and hear our Saviour say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Hear our prayer and bless us now as we once again sit under the ministry of your life-giving word through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, just before David speaks, let me read verses 1 to 6 of James chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. May God bless to us his word. Thank you very much, David. Let me just say, um, I told you yesterday morning how knackered I am. Um, And let me say how refreshing it has been. Uh, to be here. It's really, really wonderful to uh, be here and be with you. I've enjoyed seeing old friends again and uh, meeting some of you for the first time. It's been me a lot of good, so thank you very much for the warmth of welcome. Um, I, I want to just begin by, uh, we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and I told you in the last session that uh, exactly like Dan said, that I think everything is flowing from chapter 4, verse 10 here about humbling yourself before the Lord. Here are lots of different examples and ways to do that, planning uh, our diaries, verses 13 to 17. We're going to look in detail at chapter 5, 1 to 6, and then suffering. Um, Let let me just very quickly tell you about chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, um, and how I would handle those. Two two things about 
uh, those verses, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, you, be, you, you, you get humility by not planning presumptuously. That, that, that's what those verses are saying. And two things in those verses, don't live your life forgetting what you are. And don't live your life forgetting whose you are. I think that's what those verses are saying. You see in verse 14, it, 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 James doesn't say, don't forget who you are. He says, what are you? What is your life? You are a mist. Don't live your life forgetting what you are. Friends, that, isn't that amazing? That's what you are, a mist. And the thing about mist is, you don't remember it. Do you remember the mist on the 15th of September, 2006? The mist in 2018, that particular morning in October when you were driving to work, it was really beautiful. You just don't remember it, do you? It's here, it's gone, it comes and goes, and that is what you are. That's what your life is. And when you realize that, it stops you planning presumptuously. The second thing is, don't live your life forgetting whose you are. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There is one person who is not a mist, but it's not you, it's Him, the Lord, and you are in His hands. I think that's what's happening in those verses. Chapter 5, verses 7 down to 20, what I think is happening here in that section is that James is finishing his letter by saying wholeness can be found in two surprising places. Wholeness is found two surprising places. Verses 7 to 12, wholeness is found in a surprising stance adopted by God's people. Wholeness is found in a surprising stance adopted by God's people, and the stance is waiting. It is surprising to cope with suffering by waiting, simply saying, Lord, I'll wait for you. I'll, I'll wait for the judge to appear on the other side of the door. If you read those verses, it is all about being patient, isn't it? 7 to 12, it's the, it's the word that just keeps coming again and again, patience. And when we suffer, the last thing we are is patient. And James is saying, if you want to be whole, you need to learn patience in the midst of your suffering. Wholeness is found in a surprising stance adopted by God's people. Verses 13 to 20, wholeness is found in a shocking reality among God's people. And that, like I was touching on, that's the perhaps surprising to you view that sometimes some sickness is because of sin. Wholeness can be found in a shocking reality among God's people. In other words, if there is sickness for sin, then confessing your sins is what can bring wholeness. Let, let me just, if that sounds really strange and you're not, you're not convinced about it, um, again, one last time, let me tell you what Andy Gemmell says about verse 17. He, he, here's what convinced me that there's more going on here than mere, um, mere general generic sickness and praying for people to be healed. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. And here's the surprise that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Andy Gemmell says, is that not a surprise? What has he just been talking about? Healing, raising up the person who is unwell, and he goes to Elijah and immediately thinks, oh yeah, he's going to talk about the raising of the widow's son, isn't he? That, 
That is the perfect example for James to use after he's been talking about God raising somebody up. Don't forget Elijah. He prayed. He did that. A boy was raised. Oh, no. Verse 17, he prayed firmly that it might not rain, and for three years it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Why, why did Elijah pray for drought? Because of judgment. Judgment on the people for what? For their double-mindedness. Choose this day who you will serve. What are the people doing? The false prophets of Baal limping between two alternatives. Literally, double-mindedness around the altar of Baal. And because of that, there is judgment on the earth, judgment on God's people. And so I think it's quite compelling that Elijah is actually an example of prayer to end judgment, prayer to end this period of suffering and sickness in our midst because of our sin. So wholeness is found in a surprising stance among God's people waiting. Wholeness is found in a shocking reality among God's people suffering for sin. But we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 to, 1 to 6 uh, in detail here to finish. And like David said, I hope it's quite a, quite a, well, I was going to say it's a shocking passage, but every part of James is uh, shocking and hard-hitting, isn't it? But I do hope it will send you on your way, at least at the, at least at the end of it, and encourage you. The, the, the thing to know about these verses, okay, is that words, words don't have all the fun uh, the Bible, I, I told you, says the Bible gives us lots of things that words do. They pierce, they heal, they endure, snare, satisfy, rebuke, harm, wound, hit, shoot, lie, and so on. But words don't have all the fun. Money can do just as much. And in fact, in our passage here, wealth does something. It doesn't just sit there silently. James is saying wealth speaks Wealth speaks. The book of Proverbs tells us that money can deceive, money can dwindle, money can grow. Proverbs tells us money can fly, money can be stolen, money can also steal life away, money can protect, and poverty can pounce. Proverbs tells us wages can bring life and income can bring punishment. Money does so much more than we often realize, doesn't it? it? Money can set us free or make us a slave. Money can discredit a gospel minister. Money can derail a ministry. Money can be what God uses to bring someone to Christ. Money can be what keeps someone out of his kingdom forever. And, James says, friends, money can be what puffs someone up with so much pride that they cannot hear what money is saying and they cannot see what is coming. That's what James is going to show us here in these verses, how to not be humble. Here it is, save your money foolishly. Handle your money foolishly is how to not be humble. Pride in the heart leads to a great big bulge in the wallet. Now, it is possible, isn't it, to see great wealth and great humility side by side. It can be done. I've seen it. I've, I've seen it in individuals. Those two things can live side by side, but it's very rare, isn't it, to have great wealth and great humility. 
years and years ago when I was doing Cornhill, I lived in, uh, in West London, and I, I lodged with a Canadian family. The pastor had brought his family over from Canada. Oh, this was after I'd done Cornhill, sorry. He, he was doing Cornhill, and I was lodging with them. And as part of his year, he was just in London for a year. He was just soaking in as much as he could of Christian ministry done a different way, the Cornhill course. He, he wanted to speak to everybody, meet everybody. And he spent his year trying to get a meeting with John Stott. And of course, John Stott's secretary was like, you know, Fort Knox in front of him, didn't let people through. It wasn't easy to do. Why do you want to see him? And eventually, at the end of the year, he got a meeting with John Stott, just simply to say hello to him. That's all he wanted was a cup of tea with him and to tell him how much he appreciated his books. And when my friend went to see John Stott and then came back to the house, I don't remember, I, I cannot recall anything, anything he told me about his meeting with John Stott apart from the fact that he was absolutely gobsmacked that John Stott lived where he lived. So some of you will know better than I do, a tiny flat tucked away in the back of somewhere, connected to all souls, I think, small, humble, tiny flat. He said, I went to the bathroom and the toilet seat was cracked. And he said, it's not what I was expecting. I, I, I thought I'd be ushered into a huge house brought into a big drawing room, a big open fire. I'd meet this lovely, distinguished Christian gentleman. Uh, and he said, instead, John Stott was fishing around with a tea bag and a cup, asked me if I wanted a tea, cup of tea and a soggy biscuit. Yeah, astonished to see somebody who's, who, who, whose life of gospel teaching more than matched the reality when he actually met him. They say, don't they, never meet your leaders, never meet your heroes, your celebrities. It's a disappointment. What happens when it's the opposite, when you meet someone you look up to and they, they exceed what you thought was going to happen at the level of the integrity of what they've done with their, their life and their possessions? It's really compelling to have, to have somebody who could have had wealth and riches and instead is living with tremendous humility. Wealth and riches can stop you hearing the gospel can stop you hearing what God is saying. Wealth and riches can stop you seeing. And that's what I want to show you here. Wealth can stop you hearing what money is saying. And wealth can stop you seeing what the clock is showing. Okay, you'll see, the, you'll see it as we go through this. Here's the first point. Number one, money talks, but some rich people can't hear what it's saying. Money talks, but some rich people can't hear what it's saying. Number two, judgment beckons, but some rich people can't tell the time. Okay, number one, money talks, but some rich people can't hear what it's saying. Now, I want you to notice why I've said some rich people, some, not all. Now, this is where you, maybe a bit like chapter, the end of chapter five on suffering and six, you might not agree with me here. I don't think in chapter five, verses one to six, I don't believe that James has the church, this struggling church in his sights here, because I think all the way through this letter, James has been making it clear who he's speaking to. See verse 11, brothers, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, brothers. That, that's the family word all the way through he's speaking to brothers, but in chapter 5, verse 1, it changes, come now, you rich. He doesn't say, you rich brothers, my wealthy sisters. Come now, you rich. And I think when James is addressing his brothers and sisters, even if they're getting it badly wrong, he keeps calling them back to repentance, doesn't he? He's 
strong with them, firm with them, but gentle. He's calling them back to what they are doing. Chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But did you notice that there is none of that here in these verses? No, here He is simply telling the rich what will happen to them. And I think he's talking here about some rich people, not all rich people. I think he's speaking to the unrighteous rich, the unbelieving rich, the kind of person who, well, kind of person who does verse 4, who deliberately oppresses their employees, takes advantage of them, eats up their pension as the, the cream on top of their own wealth. I think it's important to get this right. James is so forceful, isn't he? So direct. And I, I, I think we've been a bit taken aback by it. Some of you, I think, have been. James is doing something remarkable here. He is speaking so directly, but he wants us to listen in. He want, he's not speaking to these believers in front of him saying, you are the rich. He's saying, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say to the rich. And I think verses 1 to 6, friends, are much more like words of Old Testament prophets, you know the Old Testament prophets who sometimes denounce the pagan nations around them, but they're speaking to God's people as they say this. Isaiah chapter 13, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. But who is God speaking to? Babylon. But He said the words to Israel, not to Babylon. He wanted them to know that destruction was coming on their enemies, coming to Babylon. So He addresses them directly. Now, can you see what God is doing? What James is doing? Why address people who aren't even in the room? Why go to all this trouble to send a deadly arrow through the air if it will not actually reach its target? The rich aren't listening to this, are they? They're on their yachts in Monaco. And here we are sitting in May's Presbyterian Church, listening to Jesus and James, God, speak to the rich. Come now, you rich. Can you hear? Verse 1, can you hear, you rich? No, of course they can't. They're, well, I don't know, rubbing on the sun cream somewhere. So, why has James upped the ante here? Why has he turned up the rhetorical heat? It, isn't his language hot? Verse 3, we'll eat your flesh like fire. Look at verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Why say that to them? Why say that about them but to God's people? Here, here's why I think. Because James knows you and I are sitting in May's Presbyterian Church, but boy, we would love to be in Monaco, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? Well, don't, don't, don't be polite about it with me. Of course we would. James knows the human heart. He's a skillful soul doctor. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. Listen to John Calvin. James is denouncing the rich like this because... He has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. Isn't that it? James has a regard to the faithful, to us, that us, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might make us not envy their fortune. 
There it is, friends, isn't it? Envy. Don't you envy the rich? My, my children at the stage where they're just, uh, we, we give them a weekly allowance, they're saving up, my eldest son's got a, a paper round. Uh, they, they're obsessed with money. Quite often they'll say, well, how much do you think he earns or who, how much money do you think they've got? And we're like, what, what the heck, where did this come from? They're obsessed with knowing how much money people have. What can they buy with it? What can they get? And I don't think once money begins to click for you like that, we, we never lose it, do we, all through life? Don't we envy the rich? Bigger house, please. Better school, private health care, secure future, nicer holidays, no overdrawn charges, no mortgage, no loan. No more arguments at home over money. No more sleepless nights. No more balancing the books. A more reliable car. A few treats. Providing for my children. Don't you envy them? This whole passage is here to, it's here to say to his friends, do not envy the unbelieving, ungodly rich. Do not envy them. Do not envy them. For here is why, money talks, but some rich people cannot hear what it's saying. So let me read these verses again, and as I read them, listen to what money is saying. Twice the text explicitly says that money is talking. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. The wages are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Can you hear it? Verse 3, will be evidence against you is literally will testify against you, will cry out against you, bear witness against you. And verse 4, the wages are crying out. Amazing, is it? It's not the workers that are crying out here. It's the money in their pocket that is screaming out against the rich. The money is shouting to them, pay me. Hand me over to the people you should be giving me to. And some rich people cannot hear what money is saying. But what do they think money is saying? What do we all think money is saying to us? Well, look at it. Look, look how wealth is described in these verses. What are the words used? Riches, garments, gold, silver. See, we all think money is saying to us, oh, suits you, sir. You look fantastic in that. You are something. You are someone. Isn't that what money does? It's what money gives us, doesn't it? Money gives us status, success, achievement, big noise, prestige, power. Oh, we, we think that's what we can hear being whispered in our ear all the time by the bonds and being spoken to us by our savings. And yet, look what James says has already happened to the rich. Your riches have rotted. Your gold and silver has corroded. The future day of judgment is so certain, so sure, that it's as if that thing in your hand has already turned to dust. Oh, friends, riches will not last. They will not last. The rich, too, die. 
So look, there are three things that James is telling the rich that their money is saying to them. Okay, there are three things the rich should hear their money saying to them. Number one, don't hoard me. It's the end of verse three. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. will eat your flesh. You have laid up treasure. Don't hoard me. That's what laid up means. You've, you've stored me. You've stockpiled me in your barns. Verse 4, don't be unjust with me. The money that you have kept back by fraud. Verse 5, money is saying, don't be self-indulgent with me. That's what money is saying. Don't hoard me. Don't be unjust with me. Don't be self-indulgent with me. Money makes you self-indulgent, doesn't it? Um, I'm about to fly internationally, God willing, tomorrow. And Terminal 5, glass, uh, what's the word for it? Citadel of consumerism, isn't it? And there's something, what, what are the shops in Terminal 5? Harrods, Selfridges? And you just think, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I kind of like this. This is, you know, I would, never in a million years would I go into Harrods anywhere else or spend anything like that. As soon as you're placed in the kind of situation where you have the potential to enjoy those sorts of things, money makes you self-indulgent, doesn't it? Karl Lagerfeld, the fashion designer, when he died, he left money to his cat, Choupette, who has her own maids, diamond necklaces, and her own Instagram account. Left money to her. Self-indulgent. What about the first thing that money is saying not to do here? Verse 3, hoarding. Laying up treasure. You've seen those programs on TV about Britain's biggest hoarders. And whatever size of hoarder we think we are, we all feel a lot better about ourselves. As soon as you see someone who's got living rooms stacked with all the old, you know, shoot annuals or whatever it is, all the way up to the ceiling. And some houses are just chock full of stuff, aren't they? Stuff in every cupboard, every nook and cranny. And it's usually rubbish. But imagine if you had a house, you, the, the TV cameras put the program on, they went into a room, and, and you saw that that room was stocked floor to ceiling with 50-pound notes or gold bars stacked up to the ceiling. James says, I want to know, would you think that was amazing or awful? Because James says it is awful. Stacked up, stored up with nowhere to go, nothing to do with it. We live in a society of massive accumulation, don't we? Massive. It, it, the amount of stuff we have is how we position ourselves in society. The more stuff we have, the more cars and houses and investments we have in our portfolios, the more pride we have in ourselves. And here's what James is getting at by saying these things rot. He's saying hoarding is not what money is for. It's not why God gave it to us. Listen to John Calvin again. I love these words. God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths. See that? Gold and silver have corroded. It's not, your, your garments have become moth-eaten. It's not why God gave them to you. God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, He has designed them as aids and help to human life. There it is, isn't it? Aids and help to human life. Friends, 
Be really clear about this in your churches with your people. Some of you will be in wealthy churches with, with wealthy people. Help your people with this. The Bible is not against wealth. I love saying to some of my younger people in church, go and get rich. Go and get rich. If you can make money, make money. The Bible is not against money. It is against the love of money. Go and get rich if you can. And as you get rich, never forget why God put that money in your hands as aids to human life. The message of the Bible, of James, of every part of the Bible is get rich if you can and give big. Give big. Earn as much as you can and give away as much as you can. Whose life are you helping? How many lives are you helping? What aid are you giving to others? What are you investing in? Someone has said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Come now, you rich. James is speaking to people who aren't listening in the presence of people who should be listening, God's people, to say that we all must hear what money is saying. Money is saying, spend me. Give me, I hope you're a spender, a spender. Give me, invest me, use me, gift me. Do that with me and in the end, humility in God's world will grow in your heart. See, James is saying, isn't he, money will give evidence one day at the trial of the rich in court. Isn't that amazing? Your, your riches will be evidence against you and their corrosion will be evidence against you. It will testify against them, saying, you, you shouldn't have hoarded me. You should have paid me to others, not defrauded them with me. You should have sacrificed with me, not been self-indulgent with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Isn't that amazing? The infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued, all those riches so greatly valued, Christianity says, can be in the wrong hands infinitely worthless. Listen to these beautiful words of John Wesley. I was in the robe chamber adjoining to the house of lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with, clair, quite clouded with care. I thought, is this all the world can give, even to a king, all the grandeur it can afford? A blanket of fur around his shoulder, so heavy and cumbersome he can scarce move under it. A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold glittering stone upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness, and even this will not endure. Number one, money talks, but some people can't hear what it's saying. Number two, judgment beckons, but some rich people can't tell the time. Some rich people can't tell the time. I think from verses five, well, really, our passage 1 to 6 and certainly into 7 to 12 are all about time, all about time. It's not just that we need to be able to hear what money is saying. 
We need to be able to see what time money is saying the clock is showing. Did you see it? Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure. Here's the clock. In the last days. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your, fattened your hearts, here's the clock, in a day of slaughter. Here is time being measured in days, and it is a certain type of day, and it is a type of day that the rich are ignorant about. The rich have no idea this measurement of time is happening to them and around them, and the measurement of time is the last days the last days. In fact, they are living in a time of luxury, preparing for a day of slaughter, day of judgment, verse 5. The Bible says that when the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again and ascended to heaven, at that moment, God started the countdown clock to judgment. Jesus in heaven means that the last days on earth are underway. Okay, when you hear that phrase, the last days, don't, don't think that we've got all this period of time and then somehow one day we're going to enter this period called the last days, a small window of time that's really, really bad, the last days, just before the end. No, not, now that Jesus has come to save, all that is left is for him to come again to judge, to do his one work of being Lord all over the earth. And he does that one work in two stages. He came once to redeem, and He will come again to complete the rescue of His people and to judge the lost. And so, says James, He will come to judge the unrighteous rich, the, the oppressing rich, the, the luxuriously self-indulgent rich, the no-thought-of-God rich, the proud rich. See, there's a really stunning twist in verse 4. Just look how it works. Look at, look at that verse again. The, the rich who are mistreating their employees, they, the, the, those rich cannot hear the money in their back pocket crying out. But they're not the only, the, not the only thing crying out. You notice that in verse 4? The wages of the laborers which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Money is crying out to the rich. The harvesters are crying out to the Lord. See, the money's cries are falling on deaf ears. But the people are crying too. What happens to their cries? Ah, uh, come, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, for their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Wow. Should chill the blood, verse 4. The Lord of hosts. In the Bible, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, means the God of armies. Sometimes the God of an earthly army, but usually it's there, that phrase, to help us Picture God as the commander-in-chief of the greatest military force the world has ever known, His heavenly army out in front of Him. James is saying, oh, look at her now in the field. Her fingers are bleeding. She looks like a worthless piece of dirt in your field. 
working herself to death to survive and get by, and you couldn't care less about her. But do you know who she's speaking to? Do you know who's on her side? The Lord of heaven and earth who hates, who hates, who hates the rich oppressing the poor, who hates the powerful trampling on the weak, the proud destroying the humble. It is a terrifying place to be for the rich. Friends, it is terrifying. Look again at the second half of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Many of you, many of you will know Sam Albury and his, his ministry. In, in his commentary in James, he tells the story of the turkey farm near where he used to live in England. I think he's in the States now, isn't he? And he says that this turkey farm near him is an idyllic space. It's surrounded by the rolling green hills of English countryside. There is as much fresh air and great food as a turkey could ever want. There is room to roam. And these are not battery turkeys. These are open field. They're stretching their legs, free range. You walk past the fence in October, Sam Olby says, you walk past in October and they are happy. They're plump. They're clucking away. And you walk past the same place in January, and the fields are empty. They're gone. And the turkeys ate and ate and ate. And you know the thing about turkeys? They do not know what time it is. August, it's beautiful. It's warm. September's amazing. What does the clock say? Uh, October. Turkeys say, look at all that food, even more food. November, even more food. December, judgment. Oblivious to the time, oblivious to what is coming. You know, friends, I think this message of time is even more important for us in these couple of weeks. COP26 happening in Glasgow. Boris was amazed to see on the BBC News the other day, Boris Johnson saying, the world is at one minute to midnight. Isn't that amazing? A world leader giving the world a measurement of time. One minute to midnight. What does Jesus say in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12? Why is it that you know how to look at the, the heavens and the stars in the sky and to work out whether you're going to need your umbrella tomorrow and to work out whether it's going to rain? Why can you read those signs and not tell the times you are in? But what does Jesus say the time is? It is time to repent. Time to repent. Brothers and sisters, every prophet in Israel, every Old Testament prophet who once stood on the stage in Israel's story, every single one of them is gone. Their work here is done. And as they stood there and warned the people, this is Amos that we're doing at Trinity at the minute, warning, warning the people that I can hear the thunder of hooves over the hills, the Assyrians are coming, warning the, warning the people, warning the nations that judgment is coming. Most of the times the people did not even look up from their idolatry, they kept on feeding themselves and feeding themselves. And the nations certainly weren't even listening. And yet, one day, the thunder of hooves got louder and louder and eventually arrived. The Assyrians came and the Babylonians came and swept them all away. What the prophets said would happen, happened. 
One day, every pulpit in every land in every church will fall silent. Every Bible will be closed for the very last time. And judgment will come. Judgment will come. The time that you are in today, in your ministry, the time that you are in is judgment is beckoning time. Not because of riches, not because of wealth, but because some people are blinded by it. They're struck deaf by it. And the world cannot see the reversal that is coming. I think there's just a hint of this reversal in verse 5, isn't it? You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, but that is going to be swapped for a day of slaughter. This is your day in the sun, James is saying, the days on earth, but in the next life it will be different. Remember Abraham's words to the rich man in Jesus' parable, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. One day the tables will turn, a swap is coming. What does Jesus say? Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you will be hungry. To you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. But blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Augustine said, He who has him to whom all things belong has all things. He who has him to whom all things belong has all things. What is God's is yours. It will be forever. You know, several years ago, we, we went as a family for one night only to stay in the home of friends who are fabulously wealthy. I mean, eye-poppingly wealthy. Kind of night where you're saying to your children all the time, shh, just don't say anything. You know, they're going to say something like, just totally amazed at this kind of world that we, world that we were in. And for one night only, because we were in relationship to these people, all that was theirs was ours. And you know what, friends? We loved it. Every single moment of it. Christ is the king of the universe. What does James call him, chapter 2? The Lord of glory. And he's yours. He's yours. What is his is yours. One day you will inherit. What did Jesus say? One day you will inherit the earth. Brothers and sisters, listen to money speaking. Learn to do with money what God intended. And in your ministry, look at the clock ticking. Oh, do not envy the rich. No, rather learn to tell the time. Be patient. Suffer well. And wait for, the wait for the judge to come. For what does James say? The judge is standing, standing at the door. Amen. Let me pray. Gracious Father, as we have prayed so often these days, would you in your kindness give us ears to hear? Ears to hear what you are saying to us, what we need to change, what we need to stop doing and begin doing. 
ears to hear what money is saying. Make us the kind of people who are so like you in being gracious and forgiving of others, so like you in lavish generosity and giving to others. I want to pray in these moments for brothers and sisters here who are particularly feeling the pressure of suffering for you or because of other circumstances in their lives. Would you help them, gracious Father, to learn to tell the time? Help us to know that we are waiting for you and for your King and for one day all things to be well. So grant us faith and trust in you, we pray. In Christ's precious name, amen. Nima.